This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Now, one of us has made a gross error and wasted the other person's valuable time. This is an art gallery, my friend. And this is a piece of art. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, James Hamrick, and as always, I am here with my co-host, Gabe Green. What's going on, man? I am very happy to be talking about this movie. That's how it's going. Same here. It's crazy. We'll we'll definitely get into it. Um, but I'm at a point where I, I'm more excited than ever to, to be able to talk about this film. Yeah, my, my, my love and respect for this just grows like exponentially with every single viewing. So last week, uh, we finished up the Blade Runner series, and we are beginning a new trilogy this week with M. Night Shyamalan's East Rail trilogy of Unbreakable, Split, and Glass. This is going to be interesting. Just the, the way it kind of spans his career, you have Unbreakable came out, it was, you know, right as he was like coming in as a huge hot shot, you know, he made Sixth Sense and everyone was looking for it Unbreakable, and then when Split comes out, it is his name is a total joke, and the landscape you know, could not be, it could not be more different as far as, you know, what he was contending against at the time. So that, that's just going to be very interesting to explore as you move, you know, across this uh, trilogy. But before we get into my discussion on that, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please uh, head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review and, a sub- and also subscribe. Uh, that would just be very helpful. And also, uh, go over to Facebook and give us a like there. You could uh, keep up with the latest episodes and uh, give feedback that we could read on the show. So I asked on Facebook what our listeners thought about this movie, and Becky said, I love the super down-to-earth approach of superheroes, which was particularly novel and rare in 2000. The frame man use of color was superb, and that continued in future installments. Uh, Candace just said, love that movie. I concur. Ray said, saw it when it came out in 2000 and wasn't hip on it. Watched it again a few months ago and enjoyed it much more. And that's the thing. That's kind of a, a thing with this movie is it didn't get the you know the hottest reception at the time, but but over like over the last like you know ten years it seems like people have really been slowly coming around to it. To right now, it's one of his most respected films. Yeah, I've definitely come to enjoy it more and more. Uh, Chris said, probably my favorite by Shyamalan, one of the best examples of visual exposition from its time, and subtle enough to make an impact with its ending, even with a textual outro. And on Twitter, Cinematic Sound Radio at Sin Sound Radio said, M. Night's best film and one of the greatest comic book films of all time. Moving into our kind of behind-the-scenes exploration of this film, um, I feel like we should kind of, to a little bit, to set the stage for uh, you know where M. Night was uh, before moving to this specific production. There seems to be there's like a weird misconception out there that The Sixth Sense was his directorial debut, um, but it was actually his third feature. So in 1992, while he was still a student at NYU, he made a semi-autobiographical film, Praying with Anger, uh, which he wrote, directed, and starred in. Then in 1998, he wrote and directed the family sports comedy Wide Awake with Rosie O'Donnell and Dennis Leary. And it's interesting that b- both of these films like heavily explored issues of faith uh, that were kind of continued as a theme all throughout his films. 
1999, uh, The Sixth Sense happened, and he became kind of a household name. You know, I, I don't remember any of this. I would have been uh, five years old at the time. Uh, but from what I hear, just the way people talk about this movie in kind of hushed tones, it, it really was a phenomenon. Uh, it was the highest grossing film of that year behind The Phantom Menace. And also, it was the highest grossing horror film of all time until it uh, passed it in 2017. So that's a, uh, what, a 18-year run. It's pretty impressive. But the thing that really made made that movie, I think, pop so much in uh, pop culture was the twist at the end. Um, kind of the thing that has become something of a curse uh, to Shyamalan's career, but it really blew the audience away at the time. Yeah, but it was just... I feel like this may have even surpassed like the usual suspects as one of the greatest twist endings. And I just, I, I remember growing up, even though I didn't see the film till later on, I, I always knew Bruce Willis is dead in that movie. It was just, it was just kind of part of the pop culture landscape. Yeah. It's what, honestly, I, I didn't even watch it until years later, but like you said, it's just like, I see dead people. Everybody knows that it's parodied. You know, as much as any other famous lion in in cinematic history. So, um, it was weird how much I knew about him as a director without even really being super familiar with his work as a kid. It was strange. I came into you know film fandom basically around the uh, last Airbender time, but even then, people still were kind of in awe of his early years. It's it's, it's just this is such a weird career, and we'll get we'll definitely get. Uh, more into that in our next episode. So getting to Unbreakable, he began working on the idea for an original story based on the concepts of comic book heroes before The Sixth Sense was even made. He originally intended it to be a kind of a three-act story with the rise of the hero, opposition from villains, and then the climax with the arch enemy. Ooh, maybe a bit of foreshadow there. Yeah, uh, but he decided to narrow the focus down to the hero's rise. Um, he wrote it as a spec script during the post-production on The Sixth Sense, he originally tended for the Horde, uh, you know, a character that appears in Split, uh, to be the main villain in this film, but he could never get it to work within this film's very subdued style and tone because the Horde is such an outlandish character. <laughs> and then it was only after he removed that character from the story, that's when Elijah Price became the villain rather than simply kind of a mentor figure as he was originally designed to be, which I don't even know what the, what, the, what does this film look like without that twist because so much of... <laughs> So much of the, the film's meaning is kind of retroactively infused into the film through that revelation. Yeah, it is. And I mean, for him to just function as a, a mentor figure feels like a 100% different kind of character than than who he is. Like his his goal and purpose for identity is, is what defines him, you know, and that's wholly reliant on the revelation. And then, uh, uh, and then after the massive success of uh, The Sixth Sense, he approached Disney, which uh, who had co-produced that film. They loved the script and bought it for five million, which is was and still is like an enormous amount for a script. He was hired as director for another five million. During this time, M. Night set up his own production company, Blinding Edge Pictures, uh, through which he has produced all his subsequent films. Uh, so he actually wrote the original script with Bruce Willis and Samuel Jackson in mind. Uh, Willis had obviously just starred in The Sixth Sense, so they still had a working relationship. Uh, they were cast as the, the the two main characters of the film, David Dunn uh, and Elijah Price. Uh, Julian Moore was originally cast as Dunn's semi-estranged wife, Audrey. Um, Robin Wright Penn, as she was then known, ended up replacing her. 
this is because uh, Julian Moore actually ended up leaving this to go and uh, play the uh, play the lead role in Hannibal. Um, Spencer Treat Clark plays Dunn's son, Joseph. Uh, Charlene Woodard was cast as Elijah Price's mother. Uh, and, of course, the, the movie-making role is uh, M. Knight in his small cameo as a drug-carrying visitor to the stadium where Dunn worked. So, film began in April of 2000. Uh, the film, like all of uh, Shyamalan's other movies, was shot in and around Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, during filming, he worked with uh, director of photography Eduardo Serra to help make the compositions uh, in the film just resemble the panels of a comic book. And that's something that I, I only really noticed this viewing, but it, it, they, they really do look like comic book panels. Like, while I was watching this time, I was like, I, I, was, I texted you that I was imagining just speech bubbles over the character's head. Like, I feel like you could translate this film just, you know, shot for shot to a comic book panel and just, just, just take the pictures, you just take the pictures out of the film and put in speech bubbles. And it would just, it would work perfectly as a comic book. Yeah. We, uh, we watched this and split leading up to glass. And that was, so this, I guess this was in January. And that was the first time that I really decided to, to try to pay attention to the the way he shot it and there are so many moments where he's intention like it's so obvious he's he's framing it like a comic book a lot of frames within frames you know doorways just things kind of boxing the characters in so james newton howard who had scored the sixth sense came on to compose the music for this film uh he says that m knight came and played out the entire film in storyboards for him uh, which I mean, I I guess it says the film works just as a as a comic book essentially. He said he's the only director who's ever actually done that for him. And apparently it worked. This score's awesome. Yeah, this score is one of my favorites from Howard. Uh, Shyamalan wanted a very specific sound for the film. Uh, they reduced the number of instruments in the music as well as uh, limiting just the orchestra to give it a very subdued sound. Um, the film was distributed in or by the Disney subsidiary Touchstone Pictures on November 22nd of 2000, alongside 102 Dalmatians, uh, and How the Grinch Stole Christmas had been released just the week before. Um, so, James, do, do you remember your first time seeing this movie, and uh, what has your relationship with it been like over the years? Yeah, so, I think I watched it for the first time a, a couple years ago, actually. Um, I grew up with signs uh and the village uh probably is the two Shyamalan movies and then I I had seen Sixth Sense much later on um but I had just never watched Unbreakable and and a, a lot of my relatives actually considered that one their favorite and his best and for some reason I just never got around to it and then a couple of years ago I watched it uh at my apartment and I liked it a good bit but I was not really impressed with it as a whole, just in in comparison to to something like Signs. Honestly, I feel like this is just how I am with most Shyamalan films, which is you kind of have to think about what it is you saw, and you don't know exactly what it is your your final thoughts are. So I saw it and I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty good. Um, watched it again with a friend, and I enjoyed it a lot more that time. Uh, and then watching it just before glass uh this last january was like a, a complete new revelation um i think i bumped it up i had it three and a half or four i think shot it to four and a half just teetering just almost giving it a full five i fell totally in love with it uh on that viewing 
um, the emotions worked, uh, the the acting. It, it was like seeing these performances for the first time without whatever was keeping me from from really appreciating uh, it beforehand. Yeah, I just I I was totally blown away with it, um, and I just found that really weird that it it took three viewings for me to really come to the the point I am now. But yeah, I'm I'm an enormous fan of this film. Yeah, so. If I remember correctly, I think my dad was a fan of this movie. And, you know, if dad's a fan of the movie, then the rest of the family's a fan of the movie kind of thing. And so I do, I do remember seeing it, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago. And I was like, those, those, those are fine. It was kind of slow, whatever. And then I saw it again you know, a few years later. I was like, that was decent. Still, you know, felt it felt kind of slow and boring to me. It wasn't until I think it was, I think it was shortly after Split. I watched it again. I was like, this is actually a really solid film. And then last year when I watched Split, you know, Science, you know, Unbreakable and Split leading up to Glass, I realized that this is actually kind of a masterpiece. So it's kind of been, kind of similar to you. It's just been like incrementally falling in love with it more and more as I watch it. Um and we'll get into kind of later why it, why it seems to be like that. And, and this seems to be kind of the testimony of like so many other fans of this movie. I, I don't like most people seem to be the, it seems to be the case that they kind of fell in love with it, you know, over multiple viewings. So just moving into the, you know, the main, just discussing the movie, the one, the, I feel like we got to talk about just M night Shyamalan's cinematic style and just what is it? I, I, I see, I feel like I see people like even are torn on it, even on these early films, like even people who respect and like, unbreakable in the sixth sense there's like there seems to be a crowd that is that is able to just completely fall in love with his tone and style and just loves every second of it and then a kind of another crowd that you know thinks these are they're good movies but is also annoyed at the way he you know he uses long takes or the very subdued acting or the kind of idiosyncratic dialogue it feels like there's just like there's some people that his style just works for and then there's another crowd that it just that that it's constantly rubbing them the wrong way, even in his early films. Have you noticed that? Oh, absolutely, and I know it because I feel like I transitioned from one of those groups to the other, so I know exactly what it was like before. For me personally, you know, the first time I watched it, I was like, I'm. I guess I equated you know just this really big build with with good storytelling. And for me, I'm like, when I, I was thinking, you know, like, when is this, when does this move from like this pretty good movie into like this amazing movie that I've heard so many great things about? And it, it feels like it just kind of stayed in one place at the beginning and then in the middle act and then the end, you know, things, we, we learn new things, but the movie just never felt like it was growing for me. And there were all these weird scenes with weird dialogue and stuff. And it, it it's, it was so specific to the movie and it was not at all a, a kind of storytelling that I was used to. Um, one thing I like—I like that you say his dialogue is is idiosyncratic. That's a good way of putting it because I see a lot of people just outright calling it bad. Um, that is something that I really disagree with. I think he's gone on to make movies with bad dialogue, uh, and that much is you know unequivocal. And there might, there are a couple stiff, awkward lines in this film as well. In, in all his films. <laughs> Definitely. Um, but I think because there's always at least, 
you know, the one or two sure examples of, of stiff dialogue and then other films that are just kind of a series of awkward conversations. You like hot dogs? <laughs> it's given people a pass to just write, write off his style entirely. And so, you know, I mean, I even remember watching some of his films with friends and who, who kind of, even with them having not seen it, who are aware of his unique way of writing dialogue that any time a line comes across or or a conversation happens and it does feel very unique or peculiar it's the mind goes to well that's that bad dialogue i heard about as opposed to like oh well it's different but let's let's assess this like let's actually dig into it and so you know there's definitely some some awkward writing uh in a couple places in this film but I actually really, really appreciate this script more and more um, every time I revisit it. And the thing is, I feel like with a film that is as subdued and quote-unquote realistic, or as you know, Shyamalan's style has been, not, not just in this, this film, this, this is probably his most subdued film, but across his, his, across his filmography, his style is... It, it, there's, it's both, you know, very showy, but also it, it's constantly just containing itself. There's, there's, there's a lot of silence and patience and just people sitting around. It's, and so I think, I feel like some people equate that with realism. And then when the dialogue is so obviously unrealistic and unique to Shyamalan, they're just like, what the heck is this? People don't act like this. And my response to that would be, no, they don't. And <laughs> This is better. These are the movies. Yeah, it's. I just. I feel like there's just there are there are mindsets. I am not saying this to demean people who just can't get into his style because it it is idiosyncratic and so you know dialogue and you know pacing all it's, it's rhythms and the rhythms won't all work, they won't work for everybody, but I think there there is something so unique and so personal to the way he crafts these films that that i don't know I, I i wish everyone could see what i see and to be able to and to be able to just watch these movies and become just so totally engrossed and absorbed because that's what that's what happens when i watch his movies when i watch the good ones you know you just can't look away from the screen you're hanging on every line and every shot is has meaning and just he just pulls you in and engages all your senses into this, you know, one since his his is one of the most engrossing cinematic styles I've ever seen, and yeah, I just I wish everyone felt that. <laughs> it, you know, one of the things that was brought up on our last episode when we talked about twenty forty nine was how often the film required active participation uh, on the part of the viewer, and I think the the case could be made that this film does the exact same thing, where um, he is telling his story visually and with this very unique style and it's uh and his slow pacing and stuff and it's it's really up to you to allow yourself to get fully immersed and absorbed and and to take part in and the kind of film that he's making and um man like you say if you're willing to do that i just i feel like these these films these good ones are are really rewarding yeah and and how that plays into unbreakable is I feel like you, you read two kind of positive reviews. One is this is really good. It's unique. It's creative. It, you know, it commented on the superhero genre before he, it was even a film genre, but it's really slow. And the other half is like, this is a freaking masterpiece. Like you can kind of tell the two types, even in the positive reviews. 
So moving into Unbreakable, this movie is very slow. It's very slow. Like so much of this film, like I think like, probably a good half of these scenes are made up of wonders with maybe an occasional insert, but often they're just a, a single shot, two people, dialogue, dialogue, and then there's a fade to black. There's a lot of fade to blacks. Did you notice how, how often that was used? Yeah, it's weird. I think it was like the second or third time I was like, this this does feel like we're we're phasing from, from scene to scene in a very intentional, flowy kind of way. Uh, I did pick up on it, though. I just had kind of an epiphany. Mr. Glass is introduced in his first two scenes through a mirror in a TV screen. Oh, yeah. So I didn't the, think about that before. <laughs> the use of reflection is really cool. Um, well, yeah. I noticed the use of reflection, but I never equated it with glass. Yeah. There's a yeah. There's the opening mirror. There's the TV screen, and then uh, the third time is through the reflection of the the comic book in, uh, framed on the wall. So every every time we experience a time jump, the first time we see him in the new era where we're with him at is through reflection. There's the there's the birth, there's the child, Ooh. and there's the adult. You blow my mind. <laughs> Another thing that I really loved was. The first two conversations between David and Audrey are framed through doorways. The first, it's it's kind of it's a, like a shot reverse shot, or not even a true shot reverse shot. It's where, like, the camera is just facing each one of them head on through a doorway. Then we cut to the other side and we see them through the doorway. It's like you know emphasizing their separation. And then their next conversation, even though they're both in the same shot, she you know, is when he it's when he asks her if he's ever been sick. You know, she's she's on one side of the doorway, and he's on the other side. It's just, again, you're emphasizing the sense of separation, and you know, that 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 you have within this couple. Yeah, th- there is so much visual storytelling going on in this, and the thing is, without noticing it, it still works on its surface level. But like like we said before, like if you're just like absorbed into this, and you're you're noticing like the visual language he's using, there's so much stuff like that. Um, the the opening scene is so fantastic where we're we're seeing the signs of this failed marriage from the eyes of like this nosy child to see the head uh i love Mm. the way he frames that scene where we're we're moving from one seat to the other like peeking back and forth at him and uh seeing the ring get taken off and put away you know we we're told so much without any sort of exposition honestly just looking at Bruce Willis's super sad face is all I could ever need to know about him. Exactly. This is honestly, this might be my favorite performance from him. Yeah. Just, let's just move into the character of David. I feel like there's something about Bruce Willis that Shyamalan was able to tap so deeply into the innate sadness of his performances. And just to give us something that is so heartbreaking from, from the moment we first see him, it's just, you know, that this man is is you know has has come to just about rock bottom and not even and not like in a way that where he's just where he's distraught and and you're panicking and, and you're lashing out but it's just as the, it's the sense of aimlessness the sense of purposelessness as he tells uh as he tells uh price that you know he wakes up every morning and he just feels sad it's like it's 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 worse than tragedy. It's it's purposelessness, I guess, and that that he feels to the core of his being. 
Yeah, that that line is is always where my mind goes to when I think of the characters. You know, for the first time in years, I woke up without being sad. Obviously, that's just a paraphrase, but I I love the way he portrays that sadness because uh, it's not this in-your-face depiction of it. But what I love about the way he's he plays it here is it's a he's a very quiet introverted kind of sadness um that, that he's learned to live with yeah like this level of, like this i this bottled up kind of accepted it and moved on kind of sadness well you know maybe in his mind thinks he's moved on but it's still just it bleeds through through everything he does these the conversations he has everything just feels so i mean even the tone of his voice it's just so quiet and sad there just feels to be no no life in him um and even but even the way he plays that that's not exaggerated it's just it's it's just so like you could meet this guy in real life and and just assume the this guy's been through so much heartbreak and stuff and it's left him as this this shell of a man and it's all just in his face exactly his his face and his tone of voice and and uh yeah I, I found his acting here just to be so emotionally present and how unpresent he is yeah just all around really really great and and it's not this like i said it's not this exaggerated one it, it feels very realistic and and it's not like he's just totally unavailable for anything you know the, the way he he has conversations with with Joseph, his son, and, and everything. Like, there's still a character there. There's still personality there, which I think is what makes the sadness so much more, you know, uh, heart wrenching. Is that this really does feel like it's it's a true human being who is who's just been put through the ringer a couple times emotionally. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that he's able to get little moments of you know the kind of trademark wit that he has, <laughs> just little lines. You know, thinking about being a male synchronized swimmer. It's only one problem. <laughs> I'm afraid of water. Like just he's able to make these lines that are so flat and monotone still kind of have an element of humor to them. And it just it seems like the the weightlifting scene. There's like it has this kind of undercurrent of humor that you know comes from both uh, Shyamalan and Willis. I love how every time we cut back, uh, Joseph is like farther and farther away, <laughs> or just the way he's like you know, you should never do anything like this. You know that. <laughs> uh, the way he just deadpans is like actually kind of funny. Yeah, and and then like. During the the revelations that he experiences, is he went you know whenever he actually, whenever the sadness or not even the sadness in these cases, just the emotion is more present. It doesn't betray this kind of more somber, low key tone of the film, uh, but it still it feels huge. Uh, the the moment that I think of is after you know after he's put on the cloak for the first time and he's got the newspaper and he pushes it over to Joseph. Just the tears in his eyes as he, you know, he tells him to shush, but he nods his head and stuff. It and honestly, this is this is just the way I feel about the acting across the whole film. Is everybody feels like they're just imploding on the inside? Like there's just emotional warfare going on underneath everyone's head in this. Everybody's got this this stuff going on, and they're all bottling it up. And and so when you have mo- just everything that can be said 
um, in this kind of huge exaggerated scene of like this is what I am it's said some in a much more profound way because of how restrained the film is you know just whenever he him pushing that over and that the tears in his eyes and uh, the tears in Joseph's eyes during that scene and the, the nods to each other there's just so much conveyed there um, and it feels like that's that's the mindset of, of all of the actors here is that you know what that is for these characters are these big explosive emotional moments for people in any other film yeah it it speaks to the power of a consistent tone you know Mm -hmm. if you have a big film you know big bombastic film you know in order to achieve that emotion you have to go bigger and bigger and bigger and i'm not not criticizing those i love those movies but when you have a film that is so subdued (laughs) when those little moments of emotion are like you know thunderclaps and i uh, you talked about how it feels like everyone in this film is kind of strangling under that emotional that weight and i feel like all of that is kind of emanating from david you know he's a person who gave up what he loved doing to you know for his wife you know to marry this girl and it's and i love it it's not that oh he chose wrong she was the wrong woman it's it's more that in in doing so, in trying to win her, he he gave up a part of himself, and they've been kind of suffering ever since. Like we don't know exactly what ruined their marriage, but I I, I would suppose it, a lot of that was the emotional distance and just you know the the sadness around everything that he touches. I remember the, the scene where he talks about where she asked him, you know, when was the first time you thought we might not make it? He says, you know, when I had a nightmare. And I didn't wake you up to make sure everything was okay. Like, I feel, I feel like it's the kind of is the they just drifted apart, and he simply is not able to, at least in the, the in the state we find him in in the beginning of this film, he is simply not emotionally capable of reaching out. And it, the, oh, the lie, you know, at the lie when uh, when Price is questioning Audrey at the, the as the physical therapy about their life, and she's telling you. Know, she tells him that you know, he gave up sports to marry me. And he's like, and you lived happily ever after. Like, you bastard. <laughs> uh. and that, honestly, man, lines like that, and especially the one you, uh, bef- you mentioned before where, you know, the, the first time he realized something was wrong was when he had a nightmare and didn't wake her up. Those lines are why I will always come to Shyamalan's defense as a writer because he's able to use lines that kind of telegraph what thing like the emotion of the scene but they don't feel at least for me and again this kind of goes back to the idea that there are two groups of people on his films but for me they just feel so perfect at the moment it's like it's like he cuts right to the chase in a lot of these scenes and he'll just come out and say in a in a line the the emotion of the scene but he'll say it in his own unique voice and like in the language that the film has been using that it just works and so especially lines, if you have good actors yeah who are who are saying it with the conviction and the emotional sincerity and, and consistency of the film's tone already it totally works just an, another line like that the very end where you've got uh jackson saying like ah, it was the children i should have known they called me Mr. Glad. Like, there's just these lines that, honestly, you can kind of see being in one of those text bubbles. And maybe that's another sign that it's a comic book thing. You know, you you only have so much room for dialogue in these things. So you kind of have to, com- like, 
compact everything that you're trying to say into this text bubble to convey everything. And and that's, maybe that's where I shine. Well, I'm learning how to write. <laughs> maybe, and and honestly, when it's on point, I think it's really fantastic. And I, I think 95 percent of the dialogue here is is really good. Yeah, it's a the, the film's kind of I guess thesis is about you know finding your purpose, and that is that is illustrated through this comic book story, which is which feels so normal these days. But you you got to realize when when he was writing this and making this movie, X Men hadn't even come out. Like X Men came out only a few months before this movie, so the. The landscape was Blade and Spawn and Catwoman was later, I think. Catwoman's in the early early 2000s, Yeah, 2004 right? or something like that. Yeah, but it was just these like very big, self-aware kind of, almost like extensions of 80s movies. Yeah, I mean, movies that I think really followed the, the tone set by Burton, um, which is just yeah. these, these dark kind of self-aware completely comic book reality kind of kind of film where everything's already set in its place by the time the, the film opens. And so he came out with a film that is, you know, commenting on deconstructing and I think celebrating that type of storytelling, the, the stories of heroes and monsters. And what I love the conceit about this film is that comic books are of a vestige of a share, you know, something that is in our shared consciousness. You know, we know somewhere inside, we know that heroes and monsters exist. And even if they've disappeared and we later find out there's a reason why they disappeared, like even though they disappeared, we know they should be there. And so then we, we, we immortalize that notion in comic books. And as he says, they've been crassly commercialized and become what they are today, but prices uh, you know, Price's uh, idea, philosophy is that there is a reality behind them, and he you know, he's the, spent his life searching for them. Um, which is just a I don't know. It's a, it's such a great take on these store on these stories. And something that I love, and it's something that I I think speaks to the timelessness of this film is to me every single time a new comic book movie comes out, this movie gets better. <laughs> like yeah, not not you know insulting the new ones you know I, I love most of the ones that are coming out it's just the more and more we we see of these tropes and these ideas play out the more and more we see just how perfect his his ideas were here and how accurate and true true to the the medium in general is um you know every time we have a story like captain marvel that come out just all about this identity and everything going on We've already seen that, like you said, deconstructed and broken down and, and, and toyed with in really interesting ways years before. Yeah, the, the thing about a deconstruction is it, it needs the established text. And, and, and you know, no knock against most superhero films, but they're not commenting on the genre. They're, they exist within the genre. They, they're, they're just part of that. They're, they're open-hearted. They're, you know, they're completely upfront about what they are, and you know, that's fine. This film, it works as a superhero film, but it also... If you want to look deeper, it works as a commentary and examination, and and what it's doing is is it's like looking past all the all the thrills, like I mean, all, all the frills of the genre, every single thing that we associate with comic book with comic books films, the the, the the whole surface level 
uh, costuming, I guess, that, that, that has taken over the genre. This film looks past it and gets right directly into the emotional reason that we love these stories. And it does so like it's it it's in a way it's like one of the most true com uh, one of the most true comic book films ever made, at the same time, not really doing anything that comic book stories do. It's so weird. It is because it gets. I feel like it gets to the to the why, um, and is firmly centered on that, and seems to not really care less about the how. You know some. The the reason for for this, you know, well, we kind of get into the how with with the later films, but here it's it's just about exploring these types of characters, you know, um, the explanation for how, like, ah, water's your weakness. <laughs> That's just how it works. Now, why are you a hero? Why do these things exist? Why do we why do we continue to write these? What is it about it? You know, and and for <laughs> it's weird, you know, well, we're probably getting this in the criticism. This is the the line where. Or this the conversation where Jackson kind of lays out his argument about what they are to me is one of the one of the few moments in the film where I think the the dialogue gets too heavy handed and a bit clunky. Um, Although Samuel Jackson's is a pompous kind of person, he he is the kind of person that would make his language as flowery and oh expansive as possible. Absolutely, that, that's why I don't even think even then that it's too big of a problem. Uh, but he, just in regards to that idea, though, that, that he's presenting, which is there's a reason we come back to this. And, you know, like in, in reality, you know, we would say it's just because of this shared desire for for a, a, an exciting depiction of good versus evil and and the idea that greatness can come from among us. But for the movie to to push that and say, like, this this is the reality, you know, there are these battles of good versus uh versus evil here and there are uh heroes among us and and this is this you know art in the case of comic books are a reflection of our history and our reality and that's just such an interesting idea to me um and when you accept it as reality in in the film then exploring it feels so much so much fun yeah, and it's not simply that, oh, this is not that the world of heroes is the reality we live in, but it's also that it's all, it's also very diving into, you know, why the whys, you know, why does someone become this hero? Why does someone become a villain? You know, it, 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 it's put, pointing back to their identity, to the, who they are, you know, whether it's a search for purpose, a defense mechanism, um, you know, a reflection of a weakness or just you know uh you know the, the the simple need for identity you know to to know that you're not a mistake it's not even about the rest of the world it's not even about how the rest of the world knows about heroes it's about you know you know it's really getting into the, the very souls of the heroes themselves so I, I guess to go back to the the technical aspects of the film and and, and praise Shyamalan a little bit more uh because this is again one of the things that I I notice more and more. Like I said earlier, I it wasn't until just before Glass, so it feels so obvious now, just the way reflection was used, the the three different times seeing him that way, um, the being introduced to the idea of his failing marriage, 
through the the eyes of the child there or you know we, we mentioned at the very beginning of the episode the idea of of framing these shots like panels uh the way he does that is just so profound in the moment to me like whenever he wakes up in the hospital we are in another um i guess not not room because they're only separated by the curtains but a, another hospital bed dedicated to uh one of the people who died on the train and the way the curtains are open it perfectly boxes him in the frame or uh whenever a glass shows up to the stadium and they're up there like in the uh the little corridor that leads out into the stadium it completely it 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 boxes them in right down the middle and it looks completely like a, a comic book panel and uh Something else that I really like about the the visual the visuals of this film is how he moves the camera. It's so weird, and I don't know if there's another movie that really feels like it. Like I don't even know what what a point of reference would be for it. Maybe a bit of Coron when it is more subdued. Maybe I, I might need to go back and watch that with that in mind. But it it almost it feels. Like outside of these these comic book panel kind of pictures, it almost feels like it's just this other, not character in it, but this thing that's just creeping around this world, peeking into the lives of these people. Uh, like whenever, I think it's the scene where um, David first goes to talk to Price, and it's just kind of outside, and we slowly move in, and we peek through the window. Um, but he moves it in these almost like tepid kind of, ways and then there are other moments where he's just like he's just picking a unique thing to do that just makes the scene even more memorable like following the weights with him as he as he benches is such a cool moment and another just another scene that encapsulates a lot about what we're talking about is whenever he goes to fight who is pretty much just labeled as the orange man uh, according to the soundtrack but that the way that scene first plays out with the the curtains opening up to reveal him and then closing and then revealing her that's just in the moment that is so cool um then as as he fights him and the camera just just pulls up as the this heroic music just starts swelling in the idea of everything being subdued that that bleeds into every aspect of this film where a huge moment just for the visuals is that the camera is rising above everything and just giving us this this elevated view of what's going on and like you said to if if you've picked a subdued kind of a quiet tone you can't betray that by going huge whenever the emotion or the action gets huge and so like they they keep that uh consistent with the emotion they even keep that consistent with the action where you know, in another movie, your first outing, like Iron Man's first flight or or Superman's first flight or, or whatever, there are these big moments. And and here, I'm <laughs> just putting this guy in a chokehold and like trying to get him down and rescuing this woman. It's so small in comparison, but it's this huge moment of, of action and, uh, and, and, you know, something, it might as well be exploding across the screen for us, but it feels so consistent and in style and in tone and so the way the music and just the substance and and the camera all works together to to highlight these moments that say so much is is really amazing and the one thing i don't feel like Shyamalan gets enough credit for is how brilliant he is at handling violence i mean just within this film like little moments like when 
the guy like in, in one of uh, his premonitions when the guy uh, you know drives by and smashes that woman over the head with a bottle or the fight with the chokehold the way he smashes into the wall like just these little oh gosh breaking bones like the, <laughs> the way he is able to highlight each moment of violence it never he doesn't allow us to become desensitized to it. every bit feels so impactful and painful and just like going to other films i think of when um when joaquin phoenix gets stabbed in the village or uh uh, we talk about later in glass when he when he you know cuts the orderly's throat. Just he is able to you know, to, to to have like perfect serenity and these bursts of violence that make them so memorable. And even though these films are so tame, it's 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 really masterful. Yeah, and I guess one one of the last things I I think I, I really noticed about his his visual storytelling and and his allowing the audience to kind of put things together um, and, and experience what's going on. I, I love the moment where we get the full flashback to the car accident. Um, I, I don't know if this was his intention uh, and this is how I'm meant to take it, but what I love about that scene is, you know, this is after several conversations with, with Price and he it's like that memory the car crash is just a memory that he's locked away like he doesn't he doesn't think about it you know maybe (laughs) probably because that's you know it's subconsciously that's where he traces back marital problems what's what's funny is the scene the the scene where uh david and joseph first go to uh to meet price when price is asking him have you ever been hurt it's joseph and not david that brings up the car crash Exactly, like it's this this incident that is totally off limits for him. It's just, it's completely locked away in his mind, and the moment where he first, like, the idea of the flashback being a visual peak or manifestation of of his own thought process is really fantastic. Where finally we, the viewers, are are allowed into this that has previously just been completely locked up, and the moment that I love in it is whenever in the flashback and the guy they cast as young Bruce Willis oh, looks yeah. just like young Bruce Willis it's amazing uh, and I think they had Bruce uh, Bruce do the ADR well, it's, man it's one of the most believable like flashbacks ever but whenever he he saves her and he's asked you know like are are you hurt or um whatever he's asked his look of surprise and revelation in there it's it's working on two different levels like it's it's his initial in the moment you know as that teenager his his expression but i think the reason that we don't cut back to present day bruce willis is because that look of revelation is a substitute for what he's feeling now like we don't need to see him because this is his this is his current revelation, you know. That was that was his look of surprise at the question then. And now that Price has given him context, you know, he didn't know what to make of it then. And now that he has the context for for what that means, this young like 18-year-old kid there is completely within that moment of this flashback, which is essentially just its own substitute for what's going on in on uh, David in David Dunn's head, 
his look of surprise is exactly what we're meant to what, be. What's the scene that the flashback happens inside of? Uh, I'm trying to remember. He had just gotten back, I think, from talking to Price. Or or no, was it whenever Price called him on the phone and he hangs up and then we go into the flashback? When we talked about I've discovered your weakness by reading the Elephant Man comic or whatever? I think so. I think that's it. Okay, yeah, I think I remember right now. Okay, but but it's just the idea that 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 moment of of being astounded and, and surprised, that moment of revelation, is is working for the character then in the moment and and for the character now. And so we we don't even need to cut back to him because this is he's experiencing it all over again now that he's opened himself back up to it. And also, I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Samuel Jackson's performance you know we've we've only mentioned <laughs> well exactly it's time for like a 20 minute deep dive into it again this is one of I think Jackson has a a bigger catalog of of really great performances because he he really never lost his stride uh, but even because s- he's so perfect at his shtick that it never you never get tired of it, even if you've seen a hundred times it's it's always fresh because he, he brings 100% to it. Yeah, and and we've also just been able to see a bunch of different layers and variations of that. And uh, and even with that impressive catalog, this is still one of my favorite performances from him. Um, and one of my worries is that people watch this film once, think it's pretty good, think nothing too you know, crazy or highly of, of Jackson's performance and never watch it again. Rewatching this film after the revelation, recontextualizing Price's mission, this performance is phenomenal. Like understanding his motivations and his drive and the reason he presses the buttons he does and he pursues it the way he does because it's a part of his own search for identity and for purpose. This is not the same kind of like sad, introverted. Uh, character that David Dunn is, but there's still this just sense of of longing mixed with just this idea of of the reality that maybe I don't find my purpose, and I think his his kind of seeming together and confident and everything, like he he definitely feels like he thinks highly of himself and the thing, and like like he's not too worried about anything in life. Life is mostly okay. Um, but I think he plays that with the intention of all of that kind of being this act that he's putting up. Because at the very end, whenever after everything is revealed about who he is and what he's done, and he talks about how worried he was that he might not find somebody, you know, that, that all of this has been for nothing. It feels like, you know, that's that's been him as a character this whole film. Is he's been so desperate and he's been hiding this sense of desperation and so just his huge sense of relief, of audible relief, and you can see on his face that he's finally found, you know, his own purpose and who he's meant to be. You see how how vulnerable he's been. And I think if you watch if you watch the character with the idea that he he does feel vulnerable, um and and kind of scared as to where the story's headed. I, it just makes performance 
click so much more because I I do think that that's what they're going for. And, you know, that sense of desperation comes through when he does stupid things like try to run down the stairs, like, or um, kind of the depression he falls into after David kind of quits on him. Uh, when he told, you know, I, I, you know, I almost died. I have a weakness, so I can't be. And then just thinking about something, the, you know, he, he's, he's, I've, maybe the reason he's being such a jerk in the opening is because he knows he just killed, you know, 170 people for no reason again. <laughs> that's why he's eviscerating the guy, you know, because, you know, because that's what you'd find at a toy store. And you must think you're at a toy store because you're shopping for an infant named Jim. Congratulations, you have a mailbox. <laughs> just, you know, he's just being such a jerk. But maybe that's thinking about that now. It's probably because he, you know, he, he just failed at another experiment. Yeah, his, his life has become a cycle of these failures. Or he's just a jerk, but I, I like to think that it's, it's another layer. Yeah, because that doesn't feel like the character he he truly is as as his excitement is peaked and as he becomes more conversational. You know, again, that just feels like that's who he's who he's being forced to become through this this cycle of failure. And he, and yeah, I don't know. Like that's that's not him in his natural state. That's just. Not not like David Dunn. It's not like it's this shell of a person he's become. It's just, it's the way he's coping with the situation. And I think like the best villains, he uh, he's very much a Lex Luthor type because I, I think he views himself as a great philanthropist in a way. Despite killing many, many people. Again, it, it's funny because th- while this is also a warped, search for the confirmation of what he suspects to be his own identity in a way he is also bringing heroes into the world and that, that comes back later in glass but yeah, i was about to say i think that would be a valid interpretation here but i think that that's definitely what we're meant to to view this film as or how we're meant to view him with with glass now being a thing i mean because, yeah because he has, he has a vest even after you know his own i, I like at, once david daniel you know, finally comes back and calls him you know I know who I am. What do I do? And he tells him, you know, go where people are. And he's, you know, kind and encouraging. I don't, I, I, he, he's gotten what he wants. He's gotten what he needs at that moment. He's gotten the validation that he is not a mistake. I think there is also a kind of a philanthropy to him or in his own mind where he's, you know, he's giving heroes to the people. He's given, you know, he's giving Dunn his identity. And, you know, again, you know, this is also a very selfish search for confirmation for, you know, you know, to give him, to give himself purpose. But can't, I, I think both are there. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, the idea of, of archetypes just in, in storytelling in general, the, the idea of like the rogue loner, um, the, the love, all of these different kinds of characters. It's like, it's like he views that as our natural state, and that's why these these tropes keep resurfacing. and And his desire is to to take to have everybody stop hiding under these these I guess quote unquote masks, um, and em- embrace the kind of people that I guess he sees that we're meant to be these very straightforward, like everybody knows their place. I am, 
you know, the society as a whole has suppressed something. We all have our roles. We all have our places. And it's like he views himself as the guy who's pulling that mask off, pulling that facade off and and forcing everybody to confront, you know, who they are. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's where the philanthropy comes in is, you know, again, not to just keep going back to Glass, but I think Glass is... You know, it it helps validate a, a lot of what we might speculate about the character here, which is, you know, he sees the world as a specific way, and he is the only guy who sees it that way, and so he's doing us a favor by, by revealing our own true nature to us. Mm-hmm. There's a touch that I noticed. Speaking of uh, Shyamalan's style, is when he first opens the comic, he, the shot as he's opening up the comic book is upside down, and then as he turns the comic book around. The, the the world goes right side up like he's finally gaining his perspective and uh, honestly that would be something that i'd like i would just write off as a coincidence but he does things like that so often that to me that's that's what he's going for i never even put it together there but that's i mean it would not surprise me if if that was his intention yeah and just going to the the, the this quest for identity it's like you know he was he was born with this bone disease to where you know he's he, his bones break. The kids call, mock him and call him Mister Glass. He was ready to give up on life and you know never leave the house again because there's only pain out there for a person like him. And then he realized you know if I am this weak, what if you know if if I am weakness incarnate, what it, is there strength out there? And you know, that kind of is what prompted you know, the search for for an unbreakable man. And it's, it's it's like the discovery of strength will give you know his own weakness purpose. You know his life of pain and misery and and you know being mocked and deval- devalued by those around him. You know, it, you know he has to find David Dunn, and David Dunn has to be a superhero for his life to have any meaning, for him to know that I am not a mistake. And what's amazing about that final scene, when we get the revelation of that, you know, he's killed hundreds of people. Even then, I am almost crying, not even over the hundreds of people who have died, but of the intrinsic beauty of a person finding identity of finding purpose it's it's, it's, this bizarre twisted way of him weeping you know the children knew the kids when they saw me like they're more open to our shared cultural memory they knew what i was and they labeled me mr glass from the beginning and now you know now that you have a purpose i have a purpose because i am not a mistake i am the villain i am the arch arch nemesis i am the the one I am here to give heroes purpose. Your know, heroes need a villain, so that I am here to give you purpose, because that that's such a deep human desire and need. You know, we need to believe that we have a reason to be here, and especially someone whose existence is pain and suffering, all the more so. I think that's what makes his character so sympathetic. Yeah, him weeping in the end. I'm not a mistake, David. Every one of us can feel that. And so is this moment of incredible catharsis and horror at the same time. Yeah, and the you know, the film does such a good job of 
fully exploring him almost as much, if not just as much, as done as a character, you know, with the flashbacks and and forcing us to exist in his pain, fr- literally from his birth. I think that's what makes that moment not just this total revulsion to him as a character, but just like, man, I get it. Not to this extent, you're horrible, but it it makes sense according to just this world that he's lived in. And I, I think that's the great villains are all are partially right. They see a flaw in the world and they're right in their, you know, they're right in their diagnosis. It's the cure where they usually fail. You know, he, he's right. This world is made up of heroes. It's made up of, you know, and heroes and monsters. And I, I almost wonder, it, like, did he have to be a villain? I think, you know, we establish you know, in Glass that he, his, his superpower is extreme intelligence. And like, did he have to be a villain? Like, is that really the way the world is, or did, he, or could he have been a hero, but he simply placed himself in the role of the villain? You know, kind of of a self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, it's it's weird trying to think about trying to think about that because by the end of Glass, I mean, I mean, this film ends with a moment of catharsis. We have this text that says he was arrested, but he turned himself in, so it's not even like it's a defeat for him. Like he, he's not interested in evil. That's the thing. He's not interested in being bad. He's not, I don't think anything he wants to, he doesn't want to hurt people. It's just a pragmatic means to an end. But at the same time, it's like, he's also, it doesn't feel like the film's also saying that that's not what he should be doing. Like, you know, it ends in a, this ends in a moment of catharsis for him. And he's in a weird way, still kind of celebrated by the end of glass that he's the catalyst that brought about everything. So it's weird trying to think of, trying to even think about that. Maybe it's the pain that drove him. Like maybe if, like he had, he, it's not, it's not like, oh, his environment, you know, he has a incredible mother and I, I love their relationship, but maybe it's just the life of pain driving him to, to those extremes. Not, not that necessarily that he had to be a villain. Maybe you know he could have ha- done his search for a hero in a different way, probably, and maybe even been successful. But just the you know, the pain and loneliness and suffering is what drove him to become the villain, and you know, maybe trying to expedite the pro- like trying to expedite the process of proving his theory is what turned him into a, a classic comic book villain. Oh man, I just I love that last line as well. Uh, when he you know, says they, I, I should have known it, you know, because the kids called me Mr. Glass. It feels like just such a justification of of his worldview that this isn't a construct. Comic books aren't a construct that we've we've just come up with as a pastime. They're they're a reflection of society. Society naturally gave me this name. It's just such a such a, an amazing note to end on that our world speaks to the reality of, of our place. Yeah, I'm, I, I texted you before. I was like, I have never had notes this focus. Is, th- th- this movie is just a, I think kind of a miracle of storytelling because there, there's no fat, there's no extraneous subplots. Every scene, every line of dialogue is pointing directly at what this film is about. It's like my notes are on done, you know, price, and then like, Two notes on the kid and the, and the wife. It's just like there's so much depth, but also it is a 
an insane lack of any kind of extraneous material that I don't know if I've ever seen a film that is this focused. Yeah, and that's kind of a reflection of what I was saying earlier, where it's, you know, the film knows its identity, which, you know, is funny considering the whole film is, or, you know, so much of it is about this search for identity, but it knows what it is, it knows what these scenes are for, and it it cuts to the chase, even with its dialogue, you know, all of these scenes, and not like an annoying kind of robotic way, um, but every scene serves its purpose for the themes, for the characters, um, Every line of dialogue is some sort of peak under, under a, or inside the mind of the character and stuff. And so, this feels like one of those movies where, if it if it lived through the you know the chopping room, or if it survived the chopping block, it it did so because it was truly needed. Um, and that's all of these scenes feel that way. Yeah, uh, I do want to talk about uh, Robin Wright as Audrey. Uh, you know, it's a very small. Uh, role you know this is you know this is a bruce willis and samuel jackson's movie and then you know her and spencer treat clark kind of are kind of there in the sidelines but you know it's such an important role um and she she has some fantastic moments like the scene where she goes and asks him you know whatever you say won't affect me but you know have you ever been with someone and then when he tells her no she just Mm -hmm. bursts into tears she's so good i love that entire like she can't even look him in the eye like you feel how broken their relationship is. You know, she she is reaching out. She Dunn's character is so passive, like, like almost unable to take any steps to repairing his marriage until you know until later on in the movie. And you know, it's her. She's she's reaching out, but she's also constantly throwing her guard up and constantly throwing out qualifiers. Like, you know, if it's not any trouble, or, or the scene where she, where he gets confirmation that he got the job in New York, and she's mm. like. Well, I, I I didn't expect us to fix everything. You know, you can go; it's fine. You know, we, 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 we'll, we'll pick up and we'll pick up from there. But like, she's she's the one reaching out. She's the one trying to save their marriage, but still also throwing up guards to keep from getting hurt again the entire time. It's so good. Yeah, one of the things that I love about this movie is that you know it is this quiet, self-examining film that deconstructs the idea of comic books and comic book films and these archetypes but you strip that all away and it still works so well as just this family drama um it doesn't need all of these bigger ideas to just to just work for these two characters but even even then the ideas are in the very soul you know him it's him accepting his his purpose in the world that lifts him out of his lethargy and allows him to then you know, repair his life. Oh, no, no, it's it's completely sewn in the DNA, but it doesn't it doesn't need that to just function for for these two characters and their relationship and just the their their family unit in general. Uh, and she, like you said, she is really really fantastic in the role. Um, and she, you know, like like Willis and and pr- pretty much everybody in the film. Again, it's just, it's very quiet, it's very subdued, but it's not absent at all. Her emotion is there. Um, her her look of kind of like annoyance, like whenever he he shows up at her night and asks about getting sick, she's like, I, I, I don't remember why. It's It feels, it again, it, it feels very realistic and down to earth, while also at other moments feeling like, 
like she goes through some of the dialogue that we talked about before where it's, it's very upfront and in, in what it's about but she just plays it so straight and so consistent um and so tonally in line with the movie and believable that every time the film is focused on their relationship uh it's kind of what what undergirds the movie you know like i, I care so much in a lot of ways just because of of her and their marriage you know i'm rooting for this to work and for this to happen and um these these big moments of triumph are made even sweeter because of what it does for for his home life yeah i think about the, the date scene I, I love the way it's able to dance between this you know kind of meet cute you know they're asking about their favorite colors and kind of tented you know very very cautiously joking around with each other and then it's able to switch you know to this very serious sad thing with you know with you know, asking these very personal questions it's such a delicate balance i think I also, I also want to talk about uh, Spencer Treat Clark. Um, this is a difficult role. Like the, the the stuff that hinges on him, like the and the amount of time you have that camera right in that kid's face, is crazy. Um, and you know, there are I think some scenes where he's a little stiff or it doesn't always work. But I think he also has some incredible moments. I think about the the scene where he's threatening uh, David with a gun like that. I can't decide whether that scene is the stupidest thing ever or absolutely brilliant it kind of it like going from second to second in that scene i'm kind of switching between oh no it's brilliant yeah let's say it is um but like the execution you know whether or not the idea is ridiculous and then again and this is based on a story i don't know if it's actually true or not like it, it sounds kind of like an urban legend but i've, I've heard it a lot uh there's a, there's a story about how a kid you know, almost shot uh, the original Superman TV actor George Reeves, and he uh, George and he Reeves had to kind of talk the kid down. You know, I'm not. You know, you know the kid was you know test trying to test whether he's Superman. I don't know if it's actually a true story, but I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that's kind of where this scene was based off of. Yeah, to me, the scene totally works um, for me. One because I, I mean, I knowing that it's all reliant on on the mind of a child, I think it, it completely works. I think the the way it's played. It's the most tense scene for me, like especially the first time watching it, even though I wasn't completely in love with the movie. That scene had me on the edge of my seat. And Willis is freaking phenomenal there. And uh, Spencer Treat Clark is really, really great there as well with the tears in his eyes. But one of the things that I love about it is it's like, it's it's the parallel with, with Glass's experience. You know, we should have known it that because of the children. That's why this the the this child having complete and total faith in this being the reality is the giveaway of that being true you know this kid hasn't gone through society and been conditioned to suppress um what price's argument is you know that that we suppress what we know to be true the idea you know if if children calling him mr glass was a revelation that like this is just what what society is like because like you said this is before the huge blow up of, of comic book movies and stuff and, and kind of i guess re-acceptance of comic books in general um so that this kid upon hearing this just okay this is this is what is this is reality and i'll prove it to you this is david dunn's experience of this of society and human nature pointing to this being the case and i i think then the reason he de so desperately needs to prove that his father's a superhero is because he has hung, I think he's hung his hope 
for his parents, you know, fixing their marriage and, you know, his dad not moving away to New York is all kind of wrapped up in his father accepting his true identity. The fear of losing a parent, that's something you can't even, an adult, I don't think, can fully imagine the way a kid processes that. And and it's been what he's been wanting since his opening scene. Again, just another great moment that doesn't need dialogue at all, like when they're leaving the hospital and and he kind of puts their hands together. Yeah, it's it's like they hug only because all the other people who lost their families are sitting there watching them. Yeah, and so, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier, which is just the the sadness of the wife of him of David. It's it's all something that emanates from David himself, and and it's like he recognizes that that you know, if this problem gets fixed, the family gets fixed, and. And so, I th- again, it's something that I think works on on more than one level of of the the faith of a child untainted by society's facade is proof of the reality, as well as just the desperation of a kid who wants his family back. Um, is there's just a lot going on? I think it all. Re- I think the more you think about it, the more it works. Yeah, and I think you know if it works, it's because of these performances, and I love the way uh, you know. Dan just kind of quietly slides away from his wife, like he's standing next to Audrey, and then when he, when he puts out the gun, he just kind of steps away to the corner. Like I, I never noticed that before. That's a really cool moment. And then I love that you know he tries to reason with him, and then once he re- realizes logic won't work, he starts threatening, and uh, I'm going to move away. Like he's you, you can you can just see him kind of coming alive, almost as if the danger and the need to protect himself, you know, to protect his wife from possible injury is like he's. You know he's coming back into his purpose, and like that—that's probably his biggest scene in the film. You know, it's like the danger is making him come alive. And oh, there's a moment that from a, you know, a special treat clock that I love when he threatens you. Know, you sh- you shoot me, it's gonna bounce on my chest, but I'm gonna go back to New York. And he's like, why? It's like such this childlike logic. Like, why would you leave if I shot you? That doesn't make any sense to me. But this, the the heartbreak in his voice as he says, you know why is so truly childlike in a way that we don't often see in film. Yeah. Although <laughs> the line, no shooting friends, Joseph. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. I do love his line where, or not even like just the, the scene where he goes back with his dad uh, when they were playing football and he has to leave as they're walking away and he just puts his hand around his back as they walk off. I, I like I like the performance quite a bit, and I, I think he he functions really well with with Wright and mm-hmm. with Willis. Yeah, it, what's asked of him the, the 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 scenes that he has to just sit there and emote, like when he when he's watching the TV and just realizing that it's his dad's train that's crashed, or just like half the movie is just him sitting there watching. The final scene, you know, when he goes down, he walks in and and you know Audrey and uh, David are you know very sweet and happy together and jokey. It's like, oh my gosh, smiles. The world's happy. Everything's great. You know, heaven on earth. And he's just kind of staring. And then, you know, the, the silent communication between him and his dad as, you know, he's, you know, yeah, I'm the hero. Like, that, 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 the kid's given a great performance right there. Especially, you know, considering what's being asked of him is kind of antithetical to, to what a kid is. Like, they're so loud and they're so upfront about their emotions. And this is a kid having to to exist in a film that's kind of all about internalizing emotions and suppressing this and um 
and that he often feels like he's he's doing that with everybody else. There's so like he's saying what he wants on the surface, but everything's quick and everything's concise and it's quiet. But you you during these scenes you look and based on his expression you know the term the emotional turmoil going on underneath it. It feels again just consistent with with the film. And just like very briefly moving into the, the actual super heroics. Um I love the way his powers are shown. Like I love that we don't see his it's not a premonition because it's going backwards in time. I don't know. I'm just gonna call them premonitions. Like the way you know where he's able to see people's guilt. And we don't actually see it the first time it happens when he bumps into the guy in the camouflage with the gun. We like he stops and looks around and then just keeps walking. And and it's like he doesn't even know what's happening. He doesn't even he hasn't even accepted that this is actually happening. He thinks it's just kind of a but then just the way they're visualizing we actually see it and uh, the moment when he walks into the train station and just you know kind of slowly raises his arms at his side and just walks through the crowd the music comes in i, I said earlier like, that that is you know the shot of in the avengers with the cameras moving around them all in a circle in new york like it's the emotions are, are almost the same level because we know what this means. He's accepted his identity. He knows who he is, and he's going out to save people. And man, the use of color in that scene is awesome as well. Yes, evil, evil is colorful apparently. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it reminds me of a uh, of something like The Killing Joke, where where you you completely wash out all the colors except for what you want to highlight, and it just it makes everything. You know, it's a very explicit way of drawing your attention and your gaze to things in a way that feels very true to the genre it's in. And it's simplifying the world. You know, everything is drab and colorless, but now it, you know, the world has purpose. He is color. Evil is color. And he has to hunt it out. It's part of the story. And one last thing I want to mention is, uh, let's see, we're here after he goes and beats, you know, he captures the, the criminal and saves the family. When he goes back, it just carries Audrey up the stairs. You know, the film has almost no close-ups, but that you know, I love the way that shot. You know, we're on Audrey's face, and you know, he picks her up, walks up, walks up the stairs, and lays her on on the bed, and the whole thing is just right on her face. And I, I just love the kind of the, you know, first she's kind of questioning and the the wonder, and then the, the, the kind of I guess the slow acceptance that something has changed that they that they are fixed and how the, how the so that's like one of their most romantic scenes in film and i feel like you know a lesser film would have you know felt that you only have to show them having sex or something to, to show that they're fixed but it doesn't matter just this simple connection of them just laying together in bed says everything we could ever need to know and again it parallels the the flashback him carrying her out of the car in his arms Ah. And now he's carrying her up the stairs and just and another thing, the same music is used in both. It's just a variation, you know, back that we've got that hero music kind of playing there. And now here, this is like this soft and sweet, intimate version of of this music. A couple of things I want to mention. The secretary at his job is awesome. <laughs> it's just <laughs> so brusque and doesn't care about anybody. It's another moment where it's like, you know what? Screw everybody else and their complaints. I love uh, Shyamalan's dialogue. <laughs> like, <laughs> whenever it's on point, it's, it's really hilarious. Right, I, I also got to mention uh, Charlene Woodard as Mrs. Price. You know, she only has a couple scenes, but she is great. The, the scene where she goes up to, you know, uh, him when he's at the TV and just 
she's just the best mom. She might have raised a super villain, but she's still an awesome mom. Oh, another thing. You know, you know he mentioned earlier uh, when, when Samuel Jackson was kind of explaining the uh, the picture to the father who's going to buy for his kid. He talks about, you know, notice the villain's enlarged head. Did they give him that giant Frederick Douglass hair <laughs> to give him a large head? Like Samuel Jackson already has a largish head. Like, was that just a, was that another hint? One. Well, I mean, if anything, it's it's disproportionate, you know, like his, the style itself <laughs> kind of goes along with the scene. So uh, are you about ready to move into the score or you, you, you have anything else you want to mention? Oh, definitely. This score is amazing. Yeah. So this, I love this. I love this score. Um, uh, it's, it's mostly orchestral, but I think there's some really cool bits of a kind of electronic music in there and then drums of all things kind of coming in. Yeah, I think that if I can just strip away like franchises you know that are like middle earth or star wars or things like that that are have the the benefit of being able to create a theme and a a musical identity and can continue to layer that if i can pull all of those kind of films out uh, of the conversation then i think unbreakable might be a top 10 score for me so just running through some of the highlights uh, first you have visions this one is the, the, the uh, Dunn's main theme. It's very, su- uh, very not simple, not subtle. It's, it's very uh, simple. Yeah, there's a, it's a very strong and distinctive theme, despite you know not having all that much movement or variety. It's kind of repeating the same notes and then moving into the drums. But even then, there's something so dynamic and unique about it. The level of emotion in this is kind of amazing, just through the, the different uh uses like what you said the versatility of it where you, you've got those notes just the dun 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 we hear that you, this one's starting off with a, a really slow version of of those few notes um it's it's like there's this this sense of of sadness and uncertainty and yet and maybe this is all just completely subjective to my experience of it, but it just it feels like uncertainty and ambiguity and regret all coming face to face with just the impending future, like that it, we're just moving on. Um, and then it leads into this on paper. It should be silly to me. Like we've got this beat with these drums that come in and it's quiet, subdued movie, but it just works so well. It's one of uh, when it's used here in Visions and then later in the track Unbreakable, it's like one of my favorite film themes ever. Yeah, and it's it's able to be so epic without ever becoming over the top. Or it's it's just the perfect theme for such a subdued and yet emotional film. Uh, this, the next one is Reflections of Elijah, which is a very clever title. We have uh, you know Glass's main theme, which is this very quiet tragedy um like it, it kind of moves through like there's the the quiet tragedy then this kind of somber reflection then it moves into a subtle touch of hope and then it combines all three where you have the tragedy the reflection and the hope kind of all moving together in this really really lovely music i love the piano in this so good. then there's a uh, weightlifting which is this very has a, like a very soft version of uh, Don's theme, and it's like a, almost like kind of twinkly and playful, or, or you know, th- this version's uh, this film's version of twinkly and playful, which would be like a you know a funeral march in any other movie. But uh, I, I, there's like a quiet kind of thrill of discovery to that scene and to the music. That's that's what it 
encompass for me was it's it's like this theme trying to audibly capture the idea of wonder and discoverment which is amazing again because this theme speaks to all sorts of other emotions at other points in the film Mm -hmm. then there's unbreakable um which is kind of cool because it it, starts with glasses theme the sadness and memory and then it moves into the main theme i think actually there are moments where it's like both playing together then there's a good night and this is another theme in here which is the family theme which is it's this very tender and delicate music. I, I, it's such a such a unique sounding piece of music. I don't even know how to describe it, but it, it's it, it appears through all throughout the film. And th- th- this moment is kind of like tender and cathartic, but also also there's kind of like a bit of regret in there. It's, uh, it's th- this theme especially is so versatile. Then there's the wreck. Is is another another film that makes use of the family theme, you know, it starts off with like a lot of sadness and then the kind of the family theme comes in. They're really strong, you know, as he's deciding to, you know, to fake the injury and, you know, so he could be with, with Audrey. And then, you know, in the context of the film with that being the revelation for, for present day, David Dunn, it, it feels like it's, it's that sense of, of wonderment and kind of discovery of when it was used weightlifting and then pushed even further to, to complete uh, identity a total revelation it's it's like the 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 way it was used previously was just like two-thirds of its full thing and this was the final acceptance of of everything that the theme is embodying and i love that the answer to this film was you know oh i chose i chose aubrey for the wrong reasons and that destroyed my life so i have to go off and be me it's rather the other that yes in choosing audrey he made mistakes but in fixing that marriage, you know, his search for identity fixes the marriage rather than you know, being its end. And then the final one is a, a Mr. Glass slash end title. Uh, this one time, a Glass's theme, which up until now in the movie has always been very sad and tragic, just haunted. It, it turns into actually it turns sinister, which I just love. And then you know, it kind of you know, mixes with the unbreakable theme. It's, it's kind of sad, but I just. I, you know, it's, it still has that sadness, but there's you know that edge of danger and menace to it that was never there before. And another track that I liked a lot is the Orange Man. Uh, again, it's kind of that that theme that's been going throughout David Dunn's journey of of discovery, and you know we've we've heard it with wonder and and, and identity and embrace, and the way it's used here during the fight with the, with the Orange Man. This is this movie's like big Avengers theme with the circling shot for me. It's like it's taking it and it's it's this moment of just pure distilled heroism and the music is it's this version this tone this reality's depiction of that kind of music yeah all right so let's move into our star rating uh we use a five star 10 point system uh 2.5 is completely average you know neither positive nor negative you know anything three stars and above is a positive and anything two stars and below is a negative so uh what do you give this out of five stars james uh, as I said earlier, I've settled on 4.5. Honestly, two years from now and a couple more viewings, maybe I'll be at five. I can't say it's it's been on quite the upward climb with every rewatch. Um, I think just because I I feel like I can say like yeah, some of the di- the dialogue is off at some points, and but honestly, my complaints stay the same every rewatch, and its strengths are magnified. So who knows? Maybe in a couple of viewings, it's just it'll be so minuscule in comparison to its triumph that it'll be five. But 
for now, for where I'm at, just, I guess, charting my, my appreciation for it, I'm at 4.5. Yeah, I'm at 4.5 as well. <laughs> it's the same as you said. It's open to going up. So as far as the box office, um, on its initial release, it grossed $95 million domestically and $135 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of $248 million on its $75 million budget. Uh, this was a massive step down from the $672 million that The Sixth Sense made. One of the reasons this happened was that the marketing was very cryptic. Uh, I think there was only one. I think there was only one trailer released, and it tells you nothing. Like the, all it does is kind of it plays the scene where he wakes up and the doctor talks to him, and it's kind of has the tone of like a horror thriller. Uh, but there's, there's just nothing there to get a hold of, which I think is one of the reasons that people didn't really go see it. Um, Shyamalan had wanted to market this as a comic book movie, but you know, at the time, like comic book movies, no, no one wants to see that. Um, so they tried to market it as like a Sixth Sense style thriller, which I think you know just played into the reception. But like, I don't like how what what does marketing for a comic book movie even look like? You know, at the, in two thousand, but also with a film that is so uncomic book like, you know, at least you know that is you know antithetical to what we perceive to be comic book movies. I, I don't even know how that would work. So, you know, I, I understand that you know, I kind of sympathize with the difficulty in marketing this, but the, what what they actually did do to sell it was was pretty bad. And I think all of that kind of played into why it wasn't as successful. But also, I think the, the opening line of a Rotten Tomatoes summary pretty much tells you all you need to know about this film's initial uh, kind of reception was that it says with a weaker ending unbreakable is not as good as the sixth sense <laughs> and that really says all you need to know they were coming into this movie they find twist. looking oh, for the it. twist well that What's wasn't as twist? good as the twist and sixth sense oh well like the, the, that was kind of the the reception of this film there's so much focus put on comparisons you know just whether or not this this film is this twist as good as this twist? You know, he is reducing Shyamalan as a filmmaker to nothing more than oh, just the guy who does twists. So much of how we perceive a film is our you know our, is 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 you know, is in our expectations. It's in what we are wanting, what we are looking for in the movie. And you can declare a, you know, a great film bad if you expected it to be something else. And I think that's what this is. Yeah, and you know, like he's made mistakes on his own and and helped kind of reduce his legacy and status on his own. It's just like you called it the twist, like a, a curse on his career before, and that you know that hasn't helped it. I think I think were this expectation not there, even despite films like The Happening or you know The Last Airbender and stuff like that, I think he wouldn't. His name wouldn't have been you know dragged through the mud quite as much if. If we were dealing with his films in a much more analytical way, as opposed to, well, what's this all really about? And the thing is, like, I think simply calling them twist films is massively reductive because, like, unlike a movie, say, like The Usual Suspects, I, I, I don't think there's really a movie there without the twist. And I like that movie well enough. But what I think what makes Shyamalan films such great examples of how to use twists properly, and not, and not all of them even have real twists, is that. Every one of his movies is complete without it. Like they function, you know, they're very, they're strong dramas. And then the twist comes in and it completely recontextualizes the movie, but the, but it w it would have worked without it. It's just, it's just the twist simply elevates it. And, and like, I, I don't, I don't see how that's a weakness. I, I just think it's massively reductive to, to, to reduce it all simply to the final twist 
because you're missing the entire movie leading up to it if you do that. So it currently holds a 70% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 62 on Metacritic. Interestingly, the audience score is at 77% on Rotten Tomatoes and 8.4 on Metacritic. It seems that, you know, those polls have probably been steadily rising as people have been, you know, rediscovering and coming around to appreciate this film. And actually, I remember the tomato meter being in the 60s, you know, a few years back. So that so the critic rating is also rising. So you know, despite that initial disappointment, it did receive generally positive reviews, you know, the the performances, uh, Shyamalan's use of tone, um, and the, the unique take on the superhero genre was was praised. Um, although there are a lot, there were a lot of criticisms. There are still to this day a bit, you know, criticisms of the the very slow, deliberate pacing that you know just doesn't work for everyone. So, as far as just the film's general legacy, I think it has continued to improve. In two thousand nine, Quentin Tarantino uh, said the the film is in his top twenty films released since nineteen ninety two. Uh, and I, along with other people I know, have kind of used that as a way to come to the defense of the film. Where I'm like, well, did you know that Quentin Tarantino? <laughs> uh, there's a there's a great video where he, I, I think he calls it like one of the first modern masterpieces. Kind of going back to what we said during our main review, I think every time a new comic book movie is released, this film becomes more important and, and retroactively better and more, more ahead of its time. Um because we just continue to have more and more data to compare it to and just to see how thorough and and precise it was in in diagnosing and and deconstructing the genre and and so I think it's been there there are always people who really enjoyed it from the beginning and I just think we've seen a steady growth in that even down to the last several years yeah cuz I remember the conversation, you know, when I was first coming into films. That's a good movie, you know, unique taste, take twist on the superhero genre. Like just the last, you know, five to eight years, I you, I've been able to just see the change, you know, within myself, my own perception of the film, but also within the larger film community. I think you know a lot of that has to do with you know since 2012 with the the, the enormous superhero boom that we've had to where it's become the most popular film, you know, genre in Hollywood. And so now everyone is literate in superhero films. Like all, even all, you know, all the you know, just normal movie going audience who are even that big film people, everyone knows how they work now. So now I think, you know, going back every time you, as you go back and look at this film, it's, you know, its own quirks and unique twists have so much more context, you know, even outside, you know, the you know, weird cinema nerds. Yeah. And I think that, that a growth of an appreciation kind of spiked with the release of Split because its fans just came out of the woodwork and I think it brought it to the attention of a lot of people who had forgotten about it. You know, the people who who even liked it, you know, like, oh, that was good and kind of stayed there without really being aware of its continued growth and appreciation. Um, you go and look up articles, you know, people going back to revisit it for the purpose of of uh of seeing you know the way it might have fed into split and there are articles of people like guys a lot of us slept on this movie because it's amazing um and so yeah i i think that that with the you know his last two films drawing attention to it and just you know again with the explosion of um of the comic book genre and of just i think there's a lot of appreciation especially now you know with a lot of I guess film buffs and in, in, in these kind of cinephile circles, there's a love of these quiet, contemplative kind of character dramas. 
um, maybe more so for that kind of storytelling than ever. And so when we've we've got this kind of movie goer going back and watching it, um, I think it's just going to continue to see more and more love. All right. Um, so that was Unbreakable. I hope you enjoyed our, our talk on it. And if you did, I'd ask you to please uh, go back, go over to iTunes and leave a rating and review and subscribe as well. And if you want to like us on Facebook, we're there as Franchise Unique Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we're there as at Franchised Pod. If you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseUniquePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Uh, you can follow me on Letterboxd. I'm there as JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. And I actually have uh, an unbreakable review that I wrote there that I wrote immediately after watching it for for the for Glass when it came out, and that's pretty much encompassing of of my thoughts on it currently. Um, on Facebook, you can find us. You, uh, you and I and some other friends are admins over at a group called the Outer Rim, a Star Wars group, uh, and we are right in the thick of things with Clone Wars, going through our full chronological marathon. Of, of Star Wars so definitely join us over there if you're wanting to talk about Star Wars in a positive light and I'm also on Letterboxd and there's Gabriel Green uh, I am on Twitter as at Gabe A. Green and I'm on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green alright so for next week we'll be back to talk about Split and how that is both kind of a surprise sequel and an unexpected redemption for Shyamalan that's that whole conversation is going to be fascinating yeah this is kind of one of the great things about having a a podcast that focuses on franchises just because it brings in the external conversation which I think is almost as interesting as the films themselves. Alright, so until next week, we will see you in the sequel. I should have known because of the children that called me Mr. Glass.